Welcome to our inaugural podcast, Control Alt Career, a podcast where we share stories of people who have taken a leap and embarked on an alternative career path in Asia. I'm your host, Jennifer Ong, and I'm very happy to have my friend Chris join us today. Chris Chung is a restaurateur and has started multiple food and beverage concepts in Hong Kong, starting with Bread and Beast, a sandwich restaurant inspired by Hong Kong flavors. Later, he expanded into Kong and Asian fusion dinner service. He's also recently opened Black Garlic, a grain bowl-based fast casual restaurant focused on servicing the office crowd. He's also started White Lemons, a B2B catering service focused on servicing gyms. Cool. Well, thanks, Chris, for your time and for joining us today. So my first question for you, I've known you for quite a while now, back in our days at Columbia University. I remember after graduation, you first started working at marketing at Unilever, first in the U.S. and then moved to Shanghai. How did you go from that to starting Bread and Beast? Did you have any prior restaurant experience? Zero operation experience in restaurants, but I think like many people who started restaurants, we were misguided in thinking that just because we've been to many restaurants and we've seen a lot and that we would know how to run a restaurant well. So that was, I think, one of the number one mistakes that people start restaurants without a restaurant background. No, but I didn't think about opening a restaurant right after Unilever. I actually was working in Shanghai. When I came back to Hong Kong, I took some time off. I was helping out my family, my sister with uh, her business, and also my uncle a little bit to do a few uh, furniture sourcing trips in in Europe. So just exploring different directions. And then I met my co-founding partners. And it was over drinks that Katie, my chef partner, uh, was very passionate about sandwiches and she wanted to, to do an awesome sandwich brand in Hong Kong. At that time, there weren't really very good sandwiches in Hong Kong. One of the most convincing points she said was that our understanding of sandwiches was just tan dahansi, which is basically spam, egg and white bread. Uh, very basic stuff. And the way that Hong Kong people perceive sandwiches is a fast food. You would only grab it for its convenience rather than for its quality. So we wanted to, to change that because all of us actually came back from abroad. There were four of us. Two came back from Canada and two of us lived in, in, in the US for a bit. So we've seen that sandwiches could be exciting. We wanted to prove to people that sandwiches can be as sophisticated as a plated dish only that it's sandwiched between two sizes of bread, so it's portable, it's more casual. So the first thing that we did was to sign up for a pop-up at Tongchang Street Market. Back then, it was still called uh, the Island East Market, uh, one of the first weekend farmer's market that happened in Hong Kong. The thing that made it a lot easier for us to start than, say, for most people, was that uh, my sister happened to be also in the F&B industry. Um, so she has a central kitchen already. Um, so there was a facility that we could just use for free. Shifting gears back a little bit to the transition from Unilever to Bread and Bees, when did you decide was the right time for you to leave your corporate job? So I first joined Unilever in New York, worked there for a year and a half, and then I transferred to Shanghai. I only stayed there for half a year, I think. I think three months into my Shanghai I was already thinking about leaving. It was a surprisingly big culture shock for me working in Shanghai. Even though it's the same company, the processes, the culture was, cannot be more different. I think one thing about working in Unilever, I learned a lot. I loved many parts of it. But one thing that I found missing was I wasn't passionate about the product. Mm -hmm. So I was working on 
love this soap brand. Even when I was in, in, in the States, when every, everything was working really well, I'm learning a great deal. The product wasn't something that I could get very excited about. And that, I think, is the biggest contrast with doing Bread and Beast, finding passion and belief in the product that we're offering to the customers. It's a huge difference. What, so when you left, did you think about, were you like, oh, okay, I definitely want to start my own thing? Or was it more like, oh, okay, like, I'll take some time off and then go reapply for jobs later on? Yeah, the latter. So I was thinking about reapplying. Oh, okay. Got it. And then I guess this idea happened and you found passion in it. It's like a slippery slope because when we first started Bread and Beast, uh, it was very light commitment. We didn't have a shop. We're only doing pop-ups and say Tongfang Street Market, we did it for two weekends. So the weekdays, I was completely free. I was still helping out my sister with an e-commerce site for, for her at the time. So it wasn't a full-time commitment. So for the whole entire of the first year, we we're just doing pop-ups and catering jobs. And then it was only until a year later that we decided to open the shop, which then became a full-time commitment. Okay. How did you decide to... I guess, open an actual store. So you mentioned that it was like a slippery slope, like you were doing it like on weekends and during the day or like during the week, you would be working uh, and helping out your sister on her e-commerce business. How did that transition? Like, how did it go from like, okay, just working weekends in street markets to like full-time, I'm committed to this. I am starting Bread and Beans. I think it was a gut feeling. And what I mean by gut feeling was that uh, at that time, the brand was garnering traction. uh, We're getting more followers. During our interaction with customers at pop-ups, uh, we're hearing a lot of, hey, like, uh, where's your restaurant? Like, we'd love to come to your restaurant. And then we felt like we were missing out on a lot of opportunities because we didn't have a brick and mortar. And we felt like everything was going well enough in terms of brand awareness. Uh, I think we, we were pretty trendy back then. And we were garnering a lot of interest from people. We're comparing ourselves to a few other similar style restaurants that started off doing pop-ups and then later on opened brick and mortar and was very successful. Following basically that kind of route, we decided that the logical next step was to open a restaurant. How did you know how to start a restaurant? Like, how did you find a space? How did you negotiate rent? How did you buy like kitchen equipment? How do you know like what food suppliers to go talk to? How did all of that happen? Katie and Louis, they've worked in restaurants before, so they have, so we relied on, I relied on them, uh, on everything that's kitchen related. Suppliers, equipment, kitchen layout, design. We couldn't afford uh, having a kitchen consultant to design the kitchen. And thankfully, they didn't ask for it anyways, trying to keep it as lean as possible. And then with everything else, uh, contractor, I think, uh, benefited from uh, family resources because my sister is an interior designer. So we asked her for some help with the design and then she introduced her contractor that she's worked with before uh, to help us out. I think it was it was really fun because uh, the whole team came together, misguided confidence and thinking about how hard could this be and uh, we just decided to do it ourselves completely. Uh, along the way, we, we just used common sense to guide us, comparing like different contractors, getting quotations, comparing different suppliers and trying to find like the best quality at the cheapest price. Cold calling like different, uh, say like for POS, okay, none of us have experience. We just basically called up like a bunch of POS suppliers and, and get them to explain to us how it works and, and learn along the way. We definitely made a lot of mistakes 
and we paid for those mistakes, but it was a fun learning process. How did you spend the next couple of years growing Bread and Beast? Was it a whole new, excuse my pun, a whole new beast to, to deal with that was very different from the pop-up that you were running previously? 100%. 100%. It was only until we opened the restaurant that we finally understood how misguided we were in thinking that this would be very simple. How we have um, mistakenly ignored all the warnings that, that people have given us uh, before we opened the restaurant. What were some of the warnings that you guys ignored? Well, that it would it would take a lot a lot of time. Like you have to be very hands on. Before before I opened the the, the 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 restaurant, I was I was misguided in thinking that how how hands on it would be. It's a simple operation. Like I've done so many pop ups. Uh, I have the SMB background. I could do it. So purely train someone to do it. It's sound uh, And my chef partners have agreed to be. Um, uh, fully operational um, and, and basically taking on all the operation uh, side of things uh, since day one. Um, so how hard could it be? I mean, I, I'm just basically uh, helping to set up uh, the restaurant in the beginning and also doing the marketing. And then I kind of thought I could be fairly hands-on, but it turned out um, to not be the case. First, uh, the, uh, our first partner left, I think, right around when we uh, signed on the lease to open this restaurant. So she was previously helping out with all the operations when, when she told us that she couldn't commit herself to being full-time, doing operations. Uh, that was uh, a left uh, the gap in the team. And so we had to find someone else to, to take over her role. And then I also thought it might be a good idea for me to be very hands-on and learn the ins and outs of the restaurant so that even though I wasn't planning to be there every day, uh, I would still know how everything works. And then it just kind of sucked me into a a position that um, I just kept doing it without ever uh, being able to, to, to leave the position of operations. So throughout your process with Bread and Beast, I know that you've had, I guess, like iterated the product a little bit. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, Kong, some of the new businesses that you moved into? Um, and actually, like, how did you decide, okay, Bread and Beast, I, I need to expand into Kong, I need to expand into White Lemon, and eventually to, to Black Garlic? Oh, that's a great question. So... Um, if I look at the journey of Brennan Beast, um, in the beginning when the co-founding partners were all uh, together, we had um, we had so much passion and belief in sandwiches, I think because of Katie. Uh, so when in 2017, uh, Katie was the last partner to, uh, to, to leave the company, when, when Katie is gone, we realized we couldn't really continue the brand the same way uh, as we had. Uh, we are really missing a, the soul of the brand. Uh, so we, we kept running. Uh, and then in the end of 2017, uh, we came across uh, a customer who is a F&B consultant from Australia. Uh, and she extended us an invite to do a pop-up in Melbourne for three months. And so that's actually the second time we did an overseas gig with Brennan Beast. But Melbourne was a, was a pretty critical um, point in the journey of Brennan Beast uh, in that 
in, in that three month pop up um, at, a, at a new food hall called Hawker, uh, we realized that um, we don't necessarily need to stick with sandwiches. We found that like the the exciting part of our brand is actually the way that we play and twist with flavors inspired by Hong Kong ingredients, sauces and all that. So coming back to Hong Kong, uh, discussed with uh, my manager, Justin, uh, then whether we should pivot and try to do something that is not sandwich related, the concept will be built around Hong Kong heritage, Hong Kong flavors, uh, how do we modernize it, make it fun, make it interactive, make it such that people from around the world would, would, would think of it, oh, this is a new type of Hong Kong cuisine. Justin, Justin later became my partner as well. Um, so that, that was the growth of Kong. Uh, we did uh, a bunch of small plates, sharing plates, uh, based on Hong Kong flavors. Um, our signature dish was was a chung yao bang, a uh, scallion pancake uh, with dips. So the idea was that when we go into an Italian restaurant, a nice Italian restaurant, they always uh, give you a bread basket with some olive oil and balsamic vinegar that really warms warms you in. Uh, we wanted to do something similar with a Chinese bread being scallion pancake, and then we created uh, dips. So instead of garlic butter, we had a black garlic aioli. Uh, and then we did a chicken liver pate with a Chinese yellow wine and goji jelly on top. And then another signature dish was a uh, cheesy crab chang fan, which was inspired by mac and cheese. Uh, but instead of macaroni, we used a Chinese uh, steamed rice roll. Uh, we sear it so that it's crispy on the outside and it's so very fluffy and, and it's soft on the inside. Uh, and then the cheese sauce, we added, we mixed in exo sauce. Uh, and then some crab, crab roll, uh, garlic, crispy garlic, to make it, to make it beautiful. Okay, tell me a little bit more about your expansion to white lemon and, and black garlic as well. Uh, so white lemon came about in 2000, 2018, uh, around April. It all happened because um, a customer, Eva and uh, Ernest, were actually owned, they're gym owners, um, uh, in the neighborhood. So they frequent Brennan Beast a lot. And one time we were chatting about our central kitchen in Chinwan. And then he asked if we would be interested in making their meal plan. So I looked at the menu and it seemed to be something that we could do. No experience in doing gym meals. Uh, not, not even experience in consuming gym meals. We plan myself. So it's completely new to me. But I looked at the recipe and it seemed like something that we could give it a try. So so that was really what kickstarted this catering line for the gyms. Chinwan is the kitchen, uh, the central kitchen that we first started. So it's my sister's central kitchen. I was basically boring her space to do this. And then I thought it was a pretty good business to run. After we, we tried it for like a month or two, I was thinking we should expand on this. And the reason of that was because Chinwan was mainly used to do catering event catering, the canopy style catering, uh, which is very seasonal. So during like uh, the fashion seasons, there'd be a lot of events. During the art art month, there'd be a lot of events and you would see uh, your sales peak. And then sometimes like, you would have like three or four events one day. And then there could be weeks when you got zero, zero job and there's nothing happening in the kitchen. So the workload is very unstable. So I thought the gym business was a great way to kind of stabilize the workload and business for the central kitchen. Anyhow, so then I 
another friend who also started a gym meal plan and he was looking to leave Hong Kong. Uh, so I approached him to discuss about taking over the business for him. So that happened and that actually became too much for the Central Kitchen team in Chinwan. So my sister and I chatted. She decided that she she wasn't really interested in doing uh, fitness meal plans. That's not what she she's passionate about. So she asked me if I wanted to continue, I should find a new space for it and just do it properly or not. So then uh, that prompted me to find a kitchen elsewhere. Um, and we found a space in Wanzhou and started a whole new business. And eventually you also just opened Black Garlic. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so Black Garlic uh, was the Asian line uh, that spawned out from the kitchen of uh, uh, White Lemon in Wanzhou uh, we want to do a, a home-style rice bowl concept. We backtrack a little bit. So after after taking after taking on the space in Wanzhou, uh, we were already thinking about okay. So it's a, it's a huge space, uh, much bigger than what we needed. I guess I was being a little aggressive in thinking that okay. So uh, we already have a pretty good base sales with just that two gyms. If I could sign on like a couple more gyms, then we make a lot of money. Meanwhile, uh, we also, my partner and I also wants to launch a brand that um, of our own because doing these gym meals, uh, we're, we're pretty much doing it uh, OEM style, uh, white label style. So it's under the gym's brand and name, and, and which is basically uh, our a supplier partner. Black Olive, uh, we landed on this name and we first launched it on this platform called Plum. Plum is a very interesting platform. Uh, the idea is a combination of like a delivery business uh, with a Groupon model. So uh, two things that are different from say uh, delivery and food panda. Uh, one is that there are only very limited offerings uh, each day, but by consolidating all your orders into uh, a few restaurants and on a few dishes, uh, they are able to get a uh, group buy discount. And then secondly, uh, they eliminated the last mile delivery. So instead of bringing it door to door, they only delivered to certain dispatch points in office dance areas. Um, so you would have to go down and pick it up yourself. But both of these are massively cost-saving. And so uh, for, for customers who want a good deal and don't mind walking down their office for a couple of minutes, uh, they get a great deal out of it. So we started partnering with Plum. I, I remember our goal was quite lofty. We were going to do a thousand meals um, a day, but over the course of I think nine months of working together, it never reached over um, to 200, 250. Eventually, Plum um, overexpanded, and currently is no longer in operations. Uh, so then we had to find a new channel for Black Garlic. And about the same time, uh, Deliveroo reached out and. Uh, offered us a spot in their Dishes Kitchen. Uh, dishes Kitchen are cloud kitchens and also serve as dispatch points. So one side of uh, the site would be actual kitchen. People are cooking uh, made-to-order uh, made style. And then the other side uh, of the kitchen is uh, basically storage space for um, chilled meals, pre-made chilled meals uh, that are microwavable. 
Um, so we were in that space. So we would make all these um, meal boxes and then send it over uh, to be sold through their channels. And then we realized that uh, there is a lot of uh, limitations uh, with this kind of operation. Uh, quality was, um, was hard to reach the point that we're satisfied. So it, the third iteration came, which is let's, let's do a brick and mortar. Um, and it was during, um, during December. Uh, so towards the end of last year's protests, uh, we found a spot uh, that was empty in PP3. And then we approached uh, Swine and asked if it's still available. Um, we'll pitch our concepts. Um, so on that same floor, uh, there's a prep and there's a salad stop. Um, so when we pitched them the idea of there are two healthy Western grab-and-go concepts. Our concept is Asian, still healthy, uh, but it's hot food. Um, so I think that would provide an, add like a nice mix to, to the tenants and offerings on that level. We're very fortunate to, to get the space. Uh, but it was a very snap decision as well. Like they got back to us really quick. So they asked for a proposal really quick after they told us it was available. Uh, and then we just whipped something up and then um, they got back to us really quick. We had to commit to the spot, I think, in a couple of days' time after they notified us. That. So out of these four businesses, um, which one is the one that has been doing the best? I think Kong was doing the best. Even though it was quite short living, uh, I think it reached an unexpected uh, level pretty quick. I, I would say the whole launch of Kong was, um, was very, very reckless. Uh, I don't think we had a proper gauge of uh, our team, what our strengths are and what we're capable of doing. Uh, it was just an idea that uh, my partner and I thought was awesome that we should do. But neither my partner nor I are, are the chefs. So, so we just kind of jumped into it. Okay. Why did you think that Kong was the one that did the best out of all the other restaurants? We thought Kong was original on its entire concept. Uh, at that time, we started doing uh, cocktails with Chinese spirits. Uh, we started bastardizing mac and cheese. And we started to become a little bit more philosophical uh, and wanted to prompt questions to um, our customers. Uh, while you're enjoying the food, Chinese noodles, local local noodles, wonton noodles, beef biscuit noodles. Uh, it doesn't matter how amazing it is; it's priced very cheaply. It's like forty, fifty dollars max. I've had really, really average pastas uh, that starts at like a hundred dollars, and really good pastas in Hong Kong cost cost a fortune. Like it goes up to like four or five hundred dollar. Why is that? Why is that like local food is so cheaply priced and then uh, passes? I think any Italian would find to be bastardized version of Italian pasta uh, can cost so much more. So, for example, uh, we would create dishes that that lies in the gray area. Is this noodles or is this pasta? Like, but we charge the price of a pasta, obviously. Uh, and then we started creating. Why is why is cocktail so expensive? I don't understand. Okay. Uh, why is Chinese Chinese dessert so cheap? Okay, so we created Chinese dessert cocktails, like a mango pomelo 
with uh, coconut rum. So is that a dessert or is that a cocktail? But obviously we charge you the price of a cocktail. Yeah, so, so there, there are a lot of questions that we wanted to uh, push our customers to think about. Uh, we wanted people to appreciate uh, Hong Kong's culture uh, and not just blindly um, go for the most exotic like, important experience. Very interesting. So you were able to make much better, like much higher margins with Kong than you would with other. I'm so sorry. I think I think I consider it a success because that people appreciated the food, the, the flavor and the taste of the food. Um, it was a uh, financial success uh, pre-COVID, and we were also able to drive that message. Uh, and we felt like we were contributing to the um, culinary scene in Hong Kong. Uh, we're trying to change the way people think and perceive um, local food versus Western or foreign food. Got it. Okay. I know you recently decided to close down Bread and Bees and also Kong after six years of uh, being in business. That must not have been an easy decision. Um, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so it's been an interesting uh, nine months. Uh, well, actually, the whole year already. So it started in June. Uh, Hong Kong was experiencing some social unrest. Uh, it really started hitting us in August uh, when the protests got more uh, frequent and, and, and more um, severe. Uh, so our weekend bunches started to take a big hit. Uh, our, our nighttime business was also taking a hit. Uh, and being in Wan China, I never realized that we're so close to so many government buildings. We were actually just one minute away from uh, South Oak, which is one of the, uh, which is one of the uh, gathering points for the protests or for the rallies. We have the police uh, headquarters. We have um, the LegCo and a couple other government buildings very close to us, High Court as well. Starting August, it starts to really affect us severely. And then actually towards December, we, are, we saw a, a, a rebound finally. So it was Christmas time uh, and uh, business was starting to pick up. And then we were all hopeful and optimistic about, um, about our business again. Uh, and then COVID hit in um, late, late January. It was actually a lot worse than the protests. Uh, and it was a lot worse than the protests because uh, it affected every single stream of our business. Uh, so aside from the shop, uh, we also have uh, a catering arm. And then, as I mentioned, we also do pop-ups. Uh, we, we kind of designed our business to be to, to level, level out, to even out uh, during different months of the year. Uh, because restaurant business alone is seasonal as well. Uh, for example, like Christmas would be a, a peak season. And then January, when you have um, New Year, like people uh, tend to eat out less because they, they overspend at the year end. And then uh, February was also a, a low month because it's Chinese New Year and people go to Chinese restaurants rather than Western restaurants. We had these things in mind, and we we try uh, we try to launch products and services that would counter these cycles for us. And then March is Art Month, so traditionally we would do a pop up at Art Central, and then immediately in April we would do a pop up uh, at Rugby Sevens as well. But all the events were cancelled, so um, so those revenue streams were completely wiped out. The past half a year uh, had been really uh, really difficult to operate. 
simply because uh, when there's so much uncertainty with uh, the COVID situation, so much uncertainty with uh, government regulations, uh, so much uncertainty with business sales, we have to take all kinds of measures uh, to lower our overhead. And that just makes maintaining your business and your standard, uh, your quality of food and service very, very difficult. So from an overhead perspective, it made sense to close down um, Brand Beast as that was the highest cost out of all the other um, concepts that you had. Exactly. Uh, towards the end, we had very few full times. We're running uh, mostly with part times because that gives us the most flexibility in, in scheduling. Like once you have more staff, so we know that Fridays would still be busy, so we have more, uh, more Friday sets, part times so on Fridays. Without full times, uh, you don't have much stability within the team. It's hard to provide the same level of products and service. Would you do this all over again? You know, knowing all of this and how this all turned out, would you do all of this again? Or would you have stuck with a corporate job? Or, and I guess like from this process, what would you have done differently now that you, know, you have been able to see everything that's happened in the last couple of years? That's a tough question because uh, the way I see it is uh, there are always pros and cons um, with everything. Uh, even with um, people I, I work with, I hire, like there are always pros and cons. Like no one's perfect. No decision is perfect. Um, so I wouldn't uh, think too much about if I were to do it all over again, would I have done it differently? Moving forward, continuing my career, I actually think I would make F&B um, more of a passion project than to have to rely uh, on it for a living. I think F&B is inherently a very tough business to make money and increasingly uh, becoming more and more competitive because A, customers are quite fickle and then B, the entry barrier is quite low. And right now, I think the entry barrier is, is lower than ever because rent has come down. It's a very unpredictable kind of business. In order to make it a financial success, I think that there's a lot of pressure on you to make compromises, to do what customers want rather than like what you believe is good. So I think it's better that for me, uh, I want to keep it as a passion project uh, and not to have to worry too much about the financial pressure. Uh, the financial pressure just changes the nature of, of what you do because I didn't start out doing uh, this out of a desire to become a billionaire. I started because I'm passionate about it. And I think over time, over the past year, like I had to make a lot of decisions that I, I wouldn't want to make because of the financial burden and pressure. I wanted to go back to you quickly about um, passion versus uh, finances. So for you, do you, you know how in like the Western world, everybody's like, oh, follow your dreams and then eventually the money will come. Do you agree with that statement or... Do you think that through you pursuing your passion, you actually had to build up a lot of financial upside? I think in Hong Kong, uh, it's like this. Um, someone someone once told me about this um, uh, pop singer in Hong Kong called Eason, uh, who's regarded as like the god of like canto pop. Basically, reference to him saying that look, uh, even if you're as good as Eason Chan, 
when he first started his career, he had to sing all kinds of uh, pop songs and he probably hated himself. himself. But once he has reached that godlike status and level, uh, then it doesn't matter what he sings. Like he can sing whatever he wants to sing and then people will still buy into it. In that sense, I felt like it does apply to a lot of industries in Hong Kong, especially the uh, non-mainstream ones. Uh, you need to build uh, a name, attraction for yourself by doing things that people want. Uh, and then once you reach a certain level, then you can, you can become an artist. That's a really great point and a really great uh, way to conclude our very first podcast. So thank you, Chris, for all your time and all your insights. Um, this has been really generous of you to share your story, your insights, um, and your advice. Um, so thank you so much for your time. Um, and we wish you all the best in your future ventures. Thank you.